Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. God, it's just, it's so strange, you know, this idea that parts of your life are are already determined. I mean, and would you want to know? I don't, I wouldn't want to know. Do you believe in star signs? I'm tempted not to, but when words like intense, incredibly charismatic and attractive are all traits associated with mine, cancer, then very selfishly, it's really hard to disagree. And today's horoscope? Well, it's very accurate. The truth is, it's not that difficult to convince humans to believe in the supernatural, even if you're sceptical from a logical perspective, as Dominic Johnson told us in Series 2, Episode 15, our brains are wired to believe in the supernatural. So when your horoscope is unfathomably accurate over and over, it's no surprise that we begin to trust it. What superstitions do you believe in, despite your better judgment? Oh, by the way, this is episode number 100. Can you believe it? The question is, is 100 a lucky number or not? Supernatural belief is at the heart of the novel we're discussing today, The Cloisters, billed as the secret history for a new generation. I am delighted to say that the book's author, Katie Hayes, is my guest today. Chapter 1 of all outlandish things. The Cloisters is a Gothic museum and garden renowned for its medieval and renaissance collections, and it becomes the unexpected workplace of Anne Stilwell when she arrives in New York City. There, she meets the museum's curator, Patrick Rowland, who holds many outlandish theories, convinced that the history of tarot holds the key to unlocking contemporary fortune-telling. And finds herself at the centre of a dangerous game of power, toxic friendship and ambition when she discovers a mysterious, once thought lost deck of 15th century Italian tarot cards. And as the game being played within the cloister spirals out of control, Anne must decide whether she is truly able to defy the cards and shape her own future. I asked Katie where the idea from the book came from. I actually, as a writer, am really interested in the question of what people are capable of believing in. So whether that's astrology or manifesting or tarot cards or charismatic con men or fringe religions, I'm really interested in the way rational, smart, well-educated humans are capable of convincing themselves of really outlandish things and really implausible things. And so I really came to this book from the perspective of thinking, what environment would make you believe in tarot cards, make you believe that they were actually telling the future? And the cloisters as a place really seemed to me uh, the kind of environment that could convince you of something like that. I mean, I often think about ghost stories, which when told I live in the mountains and so often we'll go camping with friends and, you know, you tell stories around a fire, it's dark. The same story that night can be absolutely bone chilling. And the next day, you know, you can laugh it right off. And I think the environment that a story is told in has such a huge impact on how the believability of the story comes across. And I think that in the case of the cloisters, I was really interested in the idea of, you know, what environment would make you believe that these tarot cards could actually tell the future? And in what scenario would you want to know what that future is? Yeah, completely. Particularly if you are potentially running from something or trying to suppress something, 
when we meet Anne for the very first time, Anne is from a place called Walla Walla, and she is running away quite literally from the town, from her mother, from the death, the recent death of her father. She is trying to make it in New York. You set this up quite beautifully at the very beginning. It doesn't go well. The life she thinks she's going to live in New York gets taken away from her before she's even started. She hasn't even unpacked yet and things change and she gets shipped off to the cloisters. But I wonder whether the extent to which you want to be part of something is involved in convincing you that something is real because she is desperate to crack into this very exclusive clubby world of art and art history. And she studies a very particular obscure and niche bit of the Renaissance. And she gets this opportunity to dip her toe in. And I kind of think, I don't blame her because I I may have convinced myself that this was real as well, right? Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And I also think we are, as people, less willing to admit that something isn't adding up when it's something we've wanted for a long time, right? This is what she's really wanted for a very long time. And I think that when you're confronted with the reality of the thing, it takes a long time to navigate your expectations and the reality of it. And they, if they don't immediately come together and match, you're more often than not likely to believe what you hoped it would be longer than perhaps is wise, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you can convince yourself of many things, whether it be you're having a good time or you're in love or you're happy or whatever it might be. But you give this character, Anne, so many opportunities to walk away. And each time, thrillingly, she doesn't. Whereas, you know, the human being in me, and I I've, I've, I think about this a lot now, particularly as we've got, you know, we've, this is our 100th episode and this, this, this keeps coming up. The human being in me is screaming at her to go home and to call her mum. But the writer in me and the fanboy of fiction in me is going, no, stay, because shit's going to get really real really quickly, right? You give us so many opportunities to go, do you know what? I'm done now. This is all a bit weird. I'm going home. And yet something in her keeps convincing her to stay, right? I think also because academia is the kind of environment that loves to test people. I think that when you're an academic, you kind of have to go through all of these many instances of hazing, right? As an undergraduate, as a graduate student, sort of um, peer-reviewed journals and sort of um, dissertation critiques and all of these moments where you're you're constantly being torn down and being asked to build yourself back up over and over again. And so I think for someone like Anne, who's interested in academia, a lot of these tests that might make you go home, in fact, feel like necessary things to overcome, that this is how she'll prove her worth in the long run, is by meeting all of these challenges. And even though they're bizarre, and even though they're, in many cases, life-threatening, she can say instead, well, I I did it, I made it through. And it's this kind of sense that on the other side of all of this, you'll all be forged in fire together. And I think academia really creates an environment that makes people much more likely to accept some very strange things. Oh, completely. And there's a moment in the book where she she's talking about the character Leo, the gardener, and she she reflects on the notion that, and we'll we'll try very hard not to do spoilers. She said, it's not that I'm worried about 
blaming him for this. I'm worried mostly about wasting this opportunity. And that put me in mind. I have only once spoken at an academic conference, and it was as a practitioner, as a crime writer. And I spoke about the nature of addiction in crime writing and how so many people that are involved in detective work are also addicted. So everything from the hard-boiled detective era to the present day. And I was struck, Katie, throughout that conference by the level of competition among the academics who were also presenting, because it was made very clear to me that my workshop which obviously wasn't a keynote speech, was basically not worth anything. And that was the first time I ever saw with my own eyes the level of competition, but mainly ambition within the academic community, which is, in my notes to you, I said, this screams throughout your book, the level of ambition that everyone involved in the cloisters has, right? Is that a real thing? You know, I think it depends on where you are. But I think if you're at the kind of place, let's say you're at, you know, what we call like a blue chip institution or a blue chip graduate program, I think every person there is that ambitious. And a lot of them, you know, the ambition is not rooted in ambition for ambition's sake. It's really rooted in a passion for the material and a desire to do good work and a desire to do interesting work. But I think it's also rooted in a desire to have your work be the work that matters to future generations. I think there's almost a kind of immortality quality to it. This idea that the work you produce in this moment will be something that is held up and that sort of holds up against time moving forward. And so I do think that is really common. And I also think that level of ambition is why people burn out really easily too. I think that you can only run that hot for a certain period of time. And then you kind of, you know, you flame out. And I think that that's, it's very common. And I think that that's a huge part of it. And I also think from my perspective as a writer, I'm really interested in the question, particularly of female ambition. I'm really interested in how women's ambition manifests itself, what women are capable of doing in a fictional world, um, what lengths they're willing to go to. And so for me, that was a huge part of it too, not just the question of academic ambition, but the question of female ambition. Chapter two, there's only room for one. Gore Vidal once said, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. That quote underpins the corrosive nature of human jealousy and a perfect fit for the relationships that we see in the cloisters. Let's stick with this notion of ambition because it's so rife throughout the novel. Not only do Anne and her friend Rachel butt heads constantly, there's conflict and rivalry in every single relationship among all the researchers in the museum. A wonderful and gripping look at obsession and the ruthless pursuit of power. Yeah, you know, I do think that kind of schadenfreude is really common in all, I mean, across all genders and in all kind of, let's say, professions and a lot of friendships. You know, this idea that if you get something, it means I lose something. And if you lose something, even though I might be sad for you, it might mean I gain something. And I think that that's really hard for people to navigate. But I really think when it comes to Anne and these kinds of relationships, for me, you know, I think female friendships are such an interesting place to look at ambition because 
in the case of someone like Rachel and Anne, right? They see in one another something they both share that's very unusual. How many people are really that interested in kind of late medieval, early Renaissance studies and are interested in very similar things, right? You come across somebody like that, you immediately want to be best friends with that person. But then ultimately, you know, the truth of academia is that there's only one, there's only room for one, right? I mean, there's only one top spot. There's only, I mean, these days, I mean, with the humanities cuts in the US, there's less than one top spot, right? So so, I mean, you're really up against each other as much as you have that kind of immediate facility and you recognize yourself in one another. There's still this sense that there's a deep competition that you can't kind of escape. You can't extract the friendship from that either. And I think that's something that really fascinated me. And I was really interested in that friendship as kind of an engine, like a narrative engine for the novel. Completely. My undergraduate degree was in history, and I, I've always been fascinated by this Churchillian notion of the further back you look, the further forwards you can see. And the notion of divination and of, you know, Renaissance use of tarot cards and, and fate and the planets and the stars as a way of predicting fate, that, that comes across as being, you know, genuine. At the heart of this story is this search for this mythical set of tarot cards, which are believed to be incredibly important in the world of divination. And people have a different relationship with the cards. Some people touch them and it does nothing for them. Other people touch them literally, and it has a very profound effect on them i have only had a tarot card reading once and i was unbelievably skeptical about the whole thing and yet what was told and played back to me was unbelievably on the money and i was like wow i mean i, I don't know whether there is anything in this at all but you can't get away from the fact that I can absolutely live in a world where people believe this is exactly what is going on, where fate is absolutely predetermined. And we can predict this through the use of these cards. There's something both horrifying and yet also reassuring about that, that your fate is predetermined. And that allows you then to live your life not necessarily worrying about it and I, and I wanted to ask you about Anne and the notion of fate in her life because as we find out eventually there's a very good reason why she's been running and she seems at all times to be butting up against choice versus fate that you know if, if somebody asked me to describe the theme the central theme of this obviously ambition certainly but choice versus fate comes screaming at me yeah, you know, when I started working on the novel, I was really interested in these late medieval, early Renaissance tarot cards. And then I was really struck by the idea that they had been used as a card game, really. And I really, though, when I started to think about card play and I started to think about the kind of way games operate and the way cards operate, I was really interested in this kind of 
interplay between chance and fate and the way the cards themselves as a kind of system rely so heavily on randomness, but also maybe not at all. Right. And and during this time period, during the kind of early Renaissance, even throughout the medieval period, I, I was really fascinated in these sort of elements of classical antiquity that persisted all the way through to the Renaissance, because in order to survive the medieval period, this kind of deeply religious very Catholic time period, you would have to, it would have to be a very resilient kind of classical theme. And the two things that really survived were astrology and this um, sort of complicated relationship with fate or fortune, la fortuna. And I was really, really drawn into this idea and the way cards themselves, whether tarot cards or just a playing card deck, might interact with this concept of fate and fortune. And so for me, I really started to think about that and structure the novel around it as a way to think about, um, you know, I from a personal perspective, I mostly think that we have free will, we choose what happens to us, we make our own decisions. It's sort of a little bit like uh, absolving yourself of responsibility if you say, well, I'm just going to leave it up to fate. I, I don't always like that. But I do think there is this sort of inescapable sense that maybe some things, despite all of that, are waiting for us. And what if we could see those things? Or what if those things were immutable? They were waiting for us, whether you know we went in search of them or not. And I think that you know this is really fundamentally for humans, a kind of a really deep struggle and something that can elicit a lot of fear. And also in some ways, a lot of, um, like you said, sort of abdication of responsibility. Oh, I don't have to worry. Some things are waiting for me. And so I think there's this really interesting push and pull when we talk about fate and free will between this sense that, you know, everything's in our control and nothing is in our control. And probably the truth, right, is somewhere in the middle, but the sort of movement back and forth between the two is something that has alarmed scholars for, I mean, centuries and has kind of, you know, in a certain sense, fallen away since let's say the 19th century, you know, we worry about it much less than scholars in the Renaissance in the medieval period. I mean, they were so obsessed with it. And I think I was really interested in that because I mean, God, it's just, it's so strange, you know, this idea that parts of your life are, are already determined. I mean, and would you want to know? I don't, I wouldn't want to know. I'm with Rachel on that one. I don't want to know. <laughs> well, there's two, there's two things on that, Katie. One is there was a movie came out a couple of years back, maybe even longer now, I've forgotten because of lockdown, but whereby it's a horror film and it's based on the, the premise that you download this app to your cell phone and you open it and it basically tells you how many days you've got left to live. Right. And everyone thinks it's this complete dinner party joke and everyone's looking at it going, Oh, I've got 65 years left. I've got 58 years left. And of course, one of our characters has got like three days left. Right. So, you know, you disappear down that, down that rabbit hole, but we've just moved into my Chinese year, the year of the rabbit and the birth rate in certain years, for example, the year of the tiger always goes up and it goes down in years that are not supposed to be as lucky or as fortuitous or as benevolent as other years. So we're still living in a world in which we believe passionately that fate is in some way predetermined. You know, I think that's so much a part of it. And I think that one of the ways that that plays out today for us in the contemporary world is this 
sort of reignition or continued fascination with astrology. This idea that we can tell so much about our fates and ourselves by reading the stars. And it's true. I mean, you know, I was born in the year of the dog. And I remember a few years ago, wasn't it the year of the golden tiger or something? Or Last the year was the year dragon? of the tiger. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember um, reading countless articles about what a fortuitous year it was to have a baby in. And I thought to myself, it, it, it's true. It's wild that this is something that we still mm. are fascinated with. But, you know, I do think that a lot of it is because humans are drawn inexorably to this idea that there has to be something beyond what we can explain, right? I mean, we have the persistence of religion. We have, despite sort of advances in science and technology, we have so much fascination still with these concepts that basically presuppose that there's something amorphous and magical and mystical that we might be able to tap into. And I think that's really appealing to people. One of the things that I adored, one of the many things that I adored about the book is how much it kept me guessing. And we think we have a handle on our narrator and our protagonist. And yet there's the something nagging at the back of my mind that, that, that there's something wrong, there's something other or different about this. And again, without giving anything away, the more I learned and the more I spent time with Anne, the more uncomfortable I became with what was going on. How much do people know? How much is stuff that you're not telling the reader, which I think is is absolutely superb. And I, I have to ask you this because recently I gave, I, I run an event here in London called the Writing Salon, which is for writers. And I ran an event recently about endings. And I was talking about the fact that there are, if you look at, if you study literature, you study film, you study television, there are a finite number of endings and broadly they are, you know, here, here's what they look like. You just need to work out what it is. And of course you can change your ending in the writing process, but once you've settled on your ending, it is paramount that you edit with the ending in sight. And, and that was quite obvious to me that you and your team had done that. But I have to ask you this, when you started writing, did you know how you were going to end this? Or are you one of those wonderful writers that I, I sort of love that, you know, we'll, we'll just don't worry about it. Just start writing and we will find a way to end this story. Are you that sort of writer? You know, I, um, I notoriously, my agent will sometimes ask me for an outline and I'm notorious <laughs> for saying, I'll write the book and then I'll give you the outline right. because I cannot outline a book before I write it. I have no idea what's happening in the book. I have what is for me, in some ways, very sadly, a very inefficient writing process. I like to draft quickly, and I will usually write two to three 80,000 word drafts of which I will just throw it out and start over and believe whatever's worth keeping will come into the next draft. And it's sort of a process of whittling away. And usually around the end of the third draft, I say, oh, I now see the pieces of the story and the way they fit. And from the third draft, I could create an outline. But those first sort of one through third drafts are just throw away. I'm working through the idea. So no, I had no idea that's where the ending was going. As I wrote the book, in fact, I remember writing the novel and at one point talking to a friend about it and saying, 
you know, I'm halfway through it and I have absolutely no idea what happens on the other side of this midway point. I have no clue what's going to happen. And I really am the kind of writer who has to, you know, I, I learn what happens in the writing of the book. Although I, I don't necessarily recommend that. I'm incredibly jealous of writers who outline and then sit down to their, you know, their laptops or their pad of paper and they have this kind of wonderful blueprint they get to follow and they can just write from their outline and discover things as they go as well. And I'm, I'm often incredibly jealous of people who can begin a book with that sort of structure. Chapter three, architects and gardeners. I've often said that writers are either architects or gardeners. Architects need to follow an outline, work to an exact plan. And in some cases, this is absolutely necessary. Whereas gardeners can take their time. They like to tinker. I'm sure you identify yourself in one of these. My advice to you is find an editor who's the exact opposite. Two gardeners get nothing done and two architects take too few risks. The Cloisters is very much the work of a gardener. And what I love about this method is you give your characters agency. You bring them to life and make them real, allowing them to make their own choices, to let their actions dictate what happens next. It may seem a little woo-woo, but we are talking about the supernatural here. Sometimes you have to write it to realize where you want to end up. I hold my endings very loosely as a writer. I really find that when I'm in this iterative drafting process, which is the way I really like to work, which is a complete redraft every time, I very rarely carry over anything from draft to draft. And when I start to kind of get to that draft, I'm there on my next project right now where you're setting the words down and you're thinking these are probably going to be the ones that don't change that much. Or if they change, it's going, we're going to start to be looking at language tweaks and not at big structural tweaks to the story. I like to hold my endings very loosely until I get to that final draft. And then I have a sense of what the ending will be. And as you get to the actual writing of it, that sort of last 10 to 20,000 words, and I know I'm setting, I'm not setting this story in stone because obviously there's so many more revisions to come, but to me, it feels that way. I like to sort of see as the pieces fall into place in that last draft if they're working the way I thought they were the first time. I think, I do think the benefit of having been an academic for so long and then coming to fiction writing is that I am ruthless with my own work. I will kill, I will take out whole characters. I will abandon entire story plots. If it is not working for me at the end, when I actually get there, it has to go. I will find something else that works. Um, and I think that especially holding my endings very loosely and knowing that they might change as I get to them has been a really helpful practice for me as a writer. And I also think, you know, I'm not a very woo-woo person, but I do think that writing is this one place where there is a lot of just magic happening. I think as a writer, that's one of the things I love most about writing is that you I mean, you're constantly surprised yourself. I mean, it's almost like you're communing with some spirit beyond you that's channeling onto the page. And, you know, nothing seems to be working for weeks and weeks and weeks or maybe months. And then suddenly it works. And I think, oh my gosh, like if I had known 20 years ago that that was what happened when you wrote books, I probably would have started writing much, much younger. But I feel like, 
you know, that's the kind of magic that I'm after. And I think I know a book is working when those moments start to happen, but sometimes you're toiling for draft after draft and there's no magic. And you're thinking, where's the spark? When is this going to work? And suddenly it starts to come through and yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to describe, but I genuinely believe it. In his book, which is part how to be a writer and part memoir, Stephen King on writing talks about the fact that you must always write in the same place at the same time, because how else will your muse find you? Which I think is exactly what you're you're talking about here. But I always ask if I'm reading something or watching something and I've got my writing hat on, I'll always try and think, what would I do? You know, and I, and I thought about that a lot in this book, you know, if I were writing and story, where would I go with it? And I came to this, to this one conclusion, which I will offer you as a theory and feel free to disagree because I'm very often wrong. That's the joy of being alive and that's the joy of opinions. But would I be right if I assumed that you surprised yourself with the way that you have ended this book? Oh, absolutely. You are correct. Um, I found it a big surprise. And in fact, I remember when I reached the end of the book, I called um, either my agent or my editor and I said, I think this is what has to happen. And it just felt like, I mean, it felt like the final unlocking of the last piece of the book. And it came very late in the process for me. And I think but I, I think a huge part of our job as writers is just being open to those moments. I think if you hold everything too tightly, if you're too attached to it, those things won't be able to kind of come into the writing. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's a huge part of it is just allowing yourself the space to make those late decisions is really important. I completely agree. And I had a meeting with a with a writer today who'd asked me for some advice and, and I said, Look, I, I can, I can give you many bits of, you know, advice, but they, these are things that have worked for me. But the biggest thing I can do is that to understand that you don't have a monopoly on good ideas and don't be precious and free your mind. Because even if, even if say an editor or an agent or whoever it is, or somebody, a friend that just reads it, you know, your partner comes up with something, it's astonishing how many times you go, I have been living with this project for three damn years and I've never have come up with that. And that is an absolute bit of genius. It still says Katie Hayes on the front of the book. You know, it doesn't matter, right? It's not, it's not really, a, you know, a, a part of it. And I think to be able to have that freedom to write and to let these characters tell you what they want to do. I found the ending. I loved the ending. What I loved about it most was that it was so matter of fact it was so there you go this is what happened and you kind of get to the end and you're like holy crap you know because it just it's just there and it's a very and i want to say it's a very academic ending and i don't mean academic in the sense that it's an academic paper but it's so neatly brought together that it does make perfect sense when you've spent i mean in the proof that i have 297 pages before you get to the tarot card reading charts at the end of it 297 pages in the company of Anne and Rachel and all of these people you get to the end and you go yeah I'd buy that I'd absolutely buy that I thought it was I thought it was really well done but I was intrigued because I wanted to ask you I felt like I was in the hands of a writer who had had so much fun exploring many different ways of ending this and gone do you know what that's the, that's how we should end the cloisters right 
Well, that is actually correct because I, I definitely, there were three or four, some pieces of the ending, some elements of it were always there, but those elements kind of pieces around it got embroidered through the process of writing all of these drafts. And, you know, it's really funny. You mentioned Stephen King's on writing. And I remember when I was in grad school, maybe my first or second year in grad school, I thought, I don't want to be in grad school anymore. I want to write fiction. That's what I want to do with my life. And I remember someone said, you should read Stephen King's on writing. And I got to the part in on writing where he says that writing a story is like excavating a fossil and you have to just, you know, brush away the fossil every day. And I remember I took the book and literally threw it across the room because I was like, there's no way this is how writers actually work. There's, it's absolutely impossible that they're just like digging in the dirt and this thing appears. Like I I did not believe it. I didn't. And for, you know, I think that really for 10 years, I I didn't go back to writing fiction or I, I only wrote sort of half-hearted starts at fiction because I I didn't believe that that was true. But the thing is, I mean, now that I've, I wrote, um, I've obviously finished a draft of my next project and I, I actually wrote a book before the cloisters as well. And I now having written several books, I mean, oh my gosh, he's totally right. <laughs> there is this kind of magical quality to the way things come into a novel yeah, yeah absolutely i if i'm writing a, a screenplay for example i have many scenes in early drafts that just say something happens right and just and move on because and yesterday my wife said to me how's it going and i said well annoyingly it's not writing itself and of course it doesn't write itself right because this stuff is if it were easy everyone would do it and everyone would be a new york times bestseller but it's hard as hell and i think that when you understand that and you've ever sat in front of a blank page or a blank screen you know how hard it is and i say and and listeners will have heard me say this many many times the first draft is never right so don't waste time getting it wrong because no editor on the planet, no publisher on the planet can help you unless you get it wrong in the early draft. You can't pitch an idea and then say, well, OK, let's publish it. You know, we need to see it. You need to screw it up first and you need to go through hell before you go, hang on, what have I been doing? You know, it's almost as if you go, right, I'm going to write another book, which basically means I'm going to spend two and a half years getting this wrong and have four amazing months at the end where it all suddenly makes sense, right? I also think in those early drafts for me, and this is really important in my process, I have to outrun my inner critic. If I'm not drafting that first draft very quickly, if I'm not, I have to write every day. Usually I write anywhere from two to 3,000 words a day when I'm writing a first draft. If I'm not drafting so fast, my own doubts about the story will start to creep in and I'll start to think, oh, this is stupid. Oh, this is a waste of my time. Oh, this isn't right. Oh, you know, I don't know what's going on. And so I feel like for me, especially that first draft, I'm just in it trying to outrun the monster behind me that is kind of saying <laughs> fiction is stupid. Nobody cares. All stories have been written. This is a waste of time. And I think that a huge part of getting the books, getting a book done, being able to get to the point where you have something good enough to revise is in those early moments outrunning that critic and just outpacing them. The critic that we all have that I think says, you know, Hey, 
fiction is stupid. I mean, it's, you know, it's a story. And I think for me, that's a huge part of it. I've just, I've got to be quick. I love that. You should put that on a t-shirt. Fiction is stupid. (laughs) Fiction is hard. It is. But you mentioned critics and uh, this book did phenomenally well when it came out in the US. It's out now in um, the UK and will undoubtedly be a huge success here. Critics have and will liken this to one particular book, which everybody listening to this will know, which is The Secret History by Donna Tartt. It is the same, but very different. And I think that that's really the point of story is that there are no new stories, just new ways of telling them. I, in particular, I stopped thinking about, you know, Donna, because I'm not reading Donna Tart, I'm reading Katie Hayes, right? So it doesn't matter. But the press and the reviews will obviously go there. And I think that's insanely flattering to you because it is that good a book, yours, The Cloisters. It is that good a book. It is absolutely able to stand on a shelf alongside The Secret History. But it also put me in mind of another writer, which I shared with you, which is Daphne du Maurier, because huge parts of this book, if not all of it, read like a lost Daphne du Maurier novel. The only thing missing from this is a Mrs. de Winter. Because, you know, the way you talk about the cloisters is the way that Du Maurier talks about Mandalay. And and I just think I love the fact that you've devised your own story. But I also loved that it made me think of so many wonderful references like The Secret History, like in particular Rebecca from Du Maurier. There are also shades of the birds in this, particularly when they start to, to take the halogens and the hallucinogenics a bit later on in the book, because there's this garden where they grow stuff that, I mean, it's like something out of Harry Potter, isn't it? Particularly the use of mandrakes where they're, they're consuming all of these opiates essentially. But to me, I took away the fact that, yeah, if you read and loved the secret history, which you will have done, you will absolutely adore this. But also if you are in any way looking for the lost Daphne du Maurier novel, it's called The Cloisters by Katie Hayes. It is out now. It is an absolute triumph. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I should say just on a note, I mean, I think it's it's such a curse as a debut novelist to be compared to Donna Tartt because, I mean, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist. And I should say that from a personal perspective, Daphne du Maurier was my first foray into adult novels when I was younger. There was no real YA fiction when I was young. Um, So you basically graduated from reading kids books to jumping into adult books. And my aunt gave me a three pack of Daphne du Maurier paperbacks when I think I turned 12 for my 12th birthday. And she gave me Rebecca, Jamaica Inn, and my cousin Rachel, which I all adored. But my One of my favorite Daphne du Maurier books is The Scapegoat, which doesn't get a lot of play, but which is, you know, I mean, to me, any kind of comparison to Daphne du Maurier feels like a dream. She's by far, I think, probably my favorite author of all time. And I I absolutely adore her sensibility and her writing. But I think sometimes she's not given enough credit for the mastery of her plots. I mean, her plots are, and everyone's like, she's so gothic. She's so atmospheric. And I'm like, are you reading this woman's plots? Like, this is wild. Yeah. So for me, I, I just wanted to say too, that, yeah, that uh, the scapegoat has always been, I think one of her best novels that I absolutely adore that most people don't get to. 
Well, that's fantastic. It, it comes screaming across that you're a Daphne du Maurier fan. Katie Hayes, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Katie Hayes for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? The human brain is wired to believe in the supernatural, toy with this notion, perhaps play with the idea of a highly rational person who is sucked into the supernatural despite their better judgment. What might make someone believe? Experiment with holding your endings loosely. Allow your characters to take you on a journey of discovery, to tell their own story and dictate their own path. And if something's not working, if an ending doesn't fit, be ruthless. Kill it off, kill off characters, surprise yourself. And finally, if you're thinking of starting your next piece of work, or indeed your first, don't wait around, just get started. Outrun your inner critic. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Grouch Show Club in London. These events are badged inside stories. They're not recorded and they're not repeated, but they are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.